Father, we pray that as we come and we begin our studies in this book for a few weeks, Lord, that you would richly bless our time. Uh, it's an often neglected book, just a little book hidden away in the New Testament here, Lord. And I pray that we would see it as not being anything minor or small, but a very significant thing. And uh, I pray that you would uh, bless our time, Lord, that you would glorify your Son, that you would speak to our hearts by your Holy Spirit through the preaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Philemon. Well, Philemon, um, just a tiny bit of background as we go in. We typically study Philemon with the book of Colossians. It follows on very nicely because it is the same people at the same time and this letter was probably delivered at the same time by the same person. So uh, when, when Tychicus came and it was delivering Ephesians to go on its circular route around Asia Minor when he came and brought the letter that was written to the Colossian church, to the church at Colossae. There was also this little letter, which is without doubt the most personal of all letters in the New Testament. It, it's it's a letter that was written to one individual from the Colossian church. And we saw in our book of Colossians that, was, that there was this, this problem, there was this false teacher coming in and he's going to bring in this false teaching. And Paul was concerned what was going to happen to the church and so he writes this letter and he warns them about this, he encourages them, he reminds them who Christ is and he warns them about this false teacher and he tells them how to live in light of that warning. And yet within the church, there's another issue. But it's a very private, not private in the sense of secret, but a very personal issue. And it's got nothing to do with the false teaching. So it's not like it's something you're going to kind of put in at the side at the end of the letter or anything like that, although he referenced it briefly so the church would be aware. But there's no indication that Philemon is the sort of guy, and we're going to be talking about this this morning, there's no indication that he's the type of guy that's going to fall for false teaching. In fact, every indication is that he's quite the opposite kind of character. But there was this situation. Now, the situation, as best as we understand it, the situation was that Philemon was a wealthy man with a large household. We're going to see his household in a moment here. And... <clears throat> As was often the case in that day, people with big households who were wealthy would have slaves or servants or bond servants. And the, the thing we always have to emphasize, particularly preaching in America, is that this is not like slavery that, was ha that happened in this country in recent centuries. It wasn't like slavery that still happens today in, in certain parts of the world. It was, it was the outworking of a lack of a welfare state as much as anything. It was people who had no other option in life, who were broke, who had no family support, who had no friends who could help them, who were literally going to starve, who would come to someone wealthy and say, let me live with you, let me work for you, let me serve you, and I just need food and I need somewhere to live. And in essence, they were doing them a favor. Not that anyone would want to be in that situation, but when you were already in that situation, that was the only option you had left to you. 
This wasn't a race thing or a racial thing. This was a poverty thing. Now, we've seen already in our studies in Ephesians and in our study in Colossians that if somebody was a master, if they had servants, if they had slaves, and the word here used twice of, uh, of the, the slave in this context is bondservant which implies that Philemon had done his period of six years under Mosaic law of, of being a slave, and that afterwards he's in no better position to end up leaving and living his own life and getting his own job separately. And he had given himself willingly, voluntarily, to Philemon as his master for life. That's what a bond servant was. It had a little ceremony for it under Mosaic law. They would put the ear lobe against the doorpost of the house and they would use a saddler's awl, something that you make holes with, in leather with, and pierce his ear against the doorframe of the house to symbolize that that person was committing themselves to that household for the remainder of their days. And that was the situation. And as we've seen, as I said in our studies in Ephesians and Colossians, the master who had a bondservant, who had a slave, had a responsibility to show their Christian faith, to show their devotion to Christ in the manner in which they treated that slave. In, the, in, in generosity, in love, in, in kindness, in humility. You know, as we said, all the general statements of how Christians should treat one another that come before the household code in Colossians and afterwards the statement regarding how you treat people outside of the faith that these statements that are either side of this, this household code about husbands and wives and children and slaves and masters, that those apply to the stuff in the middle as well. So if you were a master, you still had to be humble towards your slave. You still had to be gentle. You still had to be gracious. You had to be forgiving and forbearing. You had to be... Um, uh, season your speech with salt and be gracious to them in, in the way you treated them. And as a slave, as a servant, you have made a commitment and in doing so you need to stick to that. You need to serve and submit to and obey your master even if they end up being a really bad one. And we have in this situation this guy Philemon who was a member of the church at Colossae. He was a member of that church. And he had a slave, a bondservant, called Onesimus. Now, there's been all sorts of different theories that have come up over the years, and some of them seem to be charged by modern, um, modern thinking insofar as or oh, we don't want the Bible to say anything that could support slavery, misunderstanding that the slavery here is very different to the slavery, again, that have been in this country in recent centuries. So I think of the options available to us, there were really um, only a couple of options that are valid. Option number one is that, and this is by far the most common one, is that Onesimus, the slave, an unbeliever, an unbeliever, as it will become clear, had this master Philemon 
And nevertheless, having given himself as a bondservant, nevertheless having a master who every indication is was a good one, decided to steal a whole bunch of his stuff and to run away. Now, there are other options that are less dramatic than that, are less negative than that, but they all involve the breaking down of relationship between Onesimus and Philemon. And at the very least, we have a breakdown in relationship, but more likely, we have an unbeliever disregarding the love that was shown to him, leaving his situation and leaving with plenty of stuff in tow. And we'll look at some of the evidence of that as we go through. But what I want to do this morning, as it says in the bulletin, is my focus this morning is not on Onesimus. We're going to talk about Onesimus next time. He is the slave, he is the servant, he's the one who's run away. This week, I want to have our focus on the man Philemon. He is an interesting character. Now, with Philemon, he is the guy that Paul clearly has a significant enough relationship with on a personal level to be able to write him a personal letter. And that's an interesting thing to note to start with. And Paul is writing him this letter, and what he says to Philemon and about Philemon is, I think, very helpful to us. So let's look at the text, go through it bit by bit. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Now, I'm going to reference back, um, I love the phrase and I love the concept of intertextuality. I do this a lot with you guys. We'll be looking at a passage and I'll say, hey, 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 this is a reference to, it's an allusion to this Old Testament passage and we'll go back and we'll look at the Old Testament passage and we'll look at the context of it and we'll see how the New Testament writer referencing the Old Testament is bringing stuff to our attention. But intertextuality isn't always Old and New Testament crossover. Intertextuality is often Old Testament and Old Testament, or New Testament and New Testament. And here we see a lot of parallels with the book of Colossians. They were written at the same time. They were written with this vocabulary and concepts in his mind. And yet, as I've said, the issue in Philemon is very different from the issue in Colossians. So I think as we look at these similarities and we look at the differences, it's very helpful to us. So in Philemon, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, here he is writing with Timothy by his side, encouraging him, helping him, and advising him on what to write. <clears throat> At the start of Colossians, equally, Timothy is there helping him write the letter. That's our similarity. But in Colossians, Paul says he is an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Paul is writing to the church. There is false doctrine. There is heresy coming into the church. It's going to affect people. And so he starts off by reminding them, I have authority. I'm an apostle. I didn't choose to be an apostle. God made me an apostle. And therefore it falls upon me to do this job. When I have to deal with false doctrine... 
I'll say things like, hey, I'm your pastor. You voted me in. You chose me. This is now my job. I've got to do this nasty stuff. I've got to address false doctrine. And that's what Paul's saying. Hey, I've got a job to do here. I've got to address this false doctrine. Now, when he's writing to Philemon, it's interesting, and we'll deal with this next week, but it's interesting, he says, I could tell you what to do, pal, but I'm not going to. In other words, I could come to you as apostle, but I'm not doing that. We're friends. He doesn't start the letter by saying, Paul, your buddy, which he could have done. He, you know, he wouldn't have used the word buddy, but he'd have said something like, you know, your friend in love or something like that. There's, there's words that could have been used to express that. But he says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Now, this is fascinating to me. Because here we've got a situation where Onesimus, Onesimus is under the authority of Philemon. Onesimus has run away from Philemon and not been a submissive servant as he should be. He's run away and he's sinned and he's sinned against Philemon in doing so. And Paul, when he comes to address this issue, the first thing he does is he associates himself not with Philemon, but with Onesimus. He says, I'm a prisoner too. I am bound and under someone. And while the, the, the bond that holds Onesimus to Philemon is one of principle, he clearly wasn't literally bound because he ran away, but Paul is bound. Maybe not with shackles like he will be for First and Second Timothy and Titus, but he's certainly under house arrest. He's locked away. He can't get out. He can't go and do what he wants to do. And so he is associating with Onesimus here, I think in a quite a clever way, in saying, I know what it means to be someone who's stuck, who can't do what they want. He's associating himself. He's empathizing immediately with the runaway slave. And he understands the reason for his being a prisoner is being a prisoner for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now, when it comes to Philemon, he calls him our beloved fellow worker. And it is apparent, as we will see, that there is much love for Philemon. Beloved is not a word that's just sprung out randomly as some sort of flattery. And he is a fellow worker. He is being recognized as being one who specifically, amongst the Colossian church, does ministry in a way that is noted. This is a guy who's using his gifts, who's using his circumstances to bless other people. And it's interesting when he addresses Philemon, he also addresses a few others. Firstly, he says um, apphia. Apphia, our sister. Um, now, Apphia isn't mentioned anywhere else, as far as I know, and it seems interesting that he says Philemon, and immediately he puts her afterwards, and she simply references our sister in Christ. And so it seems logical to me, in just the way that you would greet someone, she's almost certainly Philemon's wife. That, that would be the logical presumption at this point. So he's greeting Philemon, greeting his wife, who he obviously is aware of, and notice here, he also mentions Archippus, our fellow soldier, um, 
and the church in your house. Now, Archippus, we saw at the end of the book of Colossians, when we had that list of people that we saw in the book of Colossians, that right at the end of that list, the last one mentioned was Archippus. Colossians 4.17, say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Now, I didn't mention this when I taught Colossians for one reason. I hadn't thought of it, but this is quite cool. In the list of all the people that he mentions in chapter 4, if you remember, there was quite a long list of names of all these different people, and we went through them all and we talked about them. The first one he lists is Onesimus who we know is the runaway servant, the runaway slave, who's now come back, right? The last one he lists is Archippus. And he says, with regards to him, make sure you fulfill your ministry. So you've, you've got this guy, Archippus. Now, I didn't look ahead, and I never do, and that's part of my problem, and I, I hands up to that. But now we're getting into Philemon, and here's Archippus again. I'm going, oh, look, Archippus, back, back in Colossians 4. And Archippus is mentioned when he's greeting the house of Philemon. And the obvious implication is that Archippus is part of the household of Philemon. Now, I don't think I'm reading into the text too much to suggest this. Philemon is a guy who we know has at least one slave, one servant. That is Onesimus, who's run away. But he's also got this other guy within his household who's notable and who's mentioned who is Archippus. And Archippus is clearly there with them. He's greeting Philemon by name. He's greeting um, his wife, Aphia, by name. And now he's greeting Archippus by name. Archippus is known in the church at Colossae, right? And Archippus is being told, fulfill your ministry. So we've got this situation where almost certainly Philemon is not wealthy enough to have one servant. He's wealthy enough to have two and of those two servants, they would come with him to the church at Colossae. Because, hey, you're part of my household, this is where I go to church, you're coming with me. So they were known to the church. And Onesimus, we will find out later, was not saved at that point. He would come to the church, he was known at the church, but he wasn't saved. But Archippus is told, see that you fulfill your ministry. He's known at the church as well, but he clearly is saved. We guys have right here a prodigal son situation. We have got the one that runs away and takes stuff with him and goes and lives a bad life and the one that stays at home. And Archippus, I think when he's being encouraged, see that you fulfill your ministry, is is the deliberate sandwich of this list of people with these two servants of Philemon. And the first one has gone and has come back, and there's great rejoicing, I believe, in the church, as I said. And then at the end, he deals with the other servant who was faithful and never went away. And it's almost as if he's preempting the prodigal son situation. The whole point of the prodigal son story isn't so much the prodigal son. It's not the son that goes away. The main point of that story is the, is the son that doesn't go away and how jealous he is and how angry he is at the attention that's given to the returning son. And it's as if Paul's saying, Onesimus has come back, 
we're rejoicing, this is good, we're going to have things right, he's going to be forgiven, there's going to be grace, this is a good thing. But Archippus, you just continue in your ministry. You just do what you're supposed to do. Isn't that a good message for all of us? There are people in church who will find great grace. Huge amounts of grace. Huge amounts of forgiveness. Why? Because they sin so much. And when they sin, there is always grace to cover that sin. And if you're not that person, if you're the one that got saved when you were young, who never wandered off, who lived a godly life, and who is faithful and just keeps being faithful, and never gets the attention that all these wayward souls get when they come back, God says, I see, you just keep on being faithful. Keep doing the ministry that you've been given to do. It's a wonderful message, and it's a wonderful thought. And I like seeing that structure now. How we have Onesimus at the beginning of the list, and um, in Colossians, and Archippus at the end of the list, you've got the two servants, the faithless one and the faithful one. And that now makes a whole bunch more sense to me, and the message that he gives him to be faithful in ministry makes a whole bunch more sense as well. So the last thing that he says in the greeting to Philemon and the household, and he says, and the church in your house. Now there's been lots that have been, lots has been written um, about house churches and the concept of house churches in the New Testament era, in the early church. And some people today are very into house churches and will try and use references to churches in people's houses um, as being normative. I think this situation here clearly shows that some people overstate their case. We have something here that is happening in the house of Philemon that's clearly referred to as church and clearly happens in his home. But at the same point, we know that Philemon is part of the church in Colossae and that they will meet there and the letter was read to them all. So really, it seems to me that in one sense, there's not a lot different than what happens in many churches today in that there is a bigger congregation of people coming together and then within that big congregation, there are smaller groups that will meet in homes as well. And that's something that I think would be a great thing for us to do if the church continues to grow, and I have no problems with, with us doing that. We, we now have a midweek study, which is great, and we'll continue to do that. But, you know, if we keep growing, I, I, we'll keep doing more meetings. I mean, that's just a wonderful thing to do. And the idea of of smaller, more intimate groups, I think is a healthy and good thing. There is one thing, though, that I would note here. He does specifically call this a church in your house. Does that mean it's independent from the church at Colossae? No, I don't think so. But I think at the very least what it does do is it says this is formally part of church. 
I think sometimes with home groups, it's a case of, oh, well, you know, we need to do another home. I mean, I've been in, in churches in the past where they say, you know, we need, let's do another Bible study. Let's do another home group. Uh, you, you can do it. Oh, well, only you, you do, you, now you can do another one. And, and they're almost given out just too freely. Again and again and again, I see people who aren't even vaguely ready to, to lead home groups or, or have any authority within a church who are given the opportunity to teach almost on a whim, seemingly. And I think that this text does seem to suggest that the, what was happening in his home was considered to be something on a serious level. And, and I, I don't think we can say it with total certainty, but it, there's nothing here to suggest otherwise um, that it may well have been Philemon himself who was leading the church in his own home. I mean, it's possible that he just has a big house because he's a wealthy guy and it's a good location to meet at, but more likely he was doing it. And that then would give reference to the context to the reference of him being a beloved fellow worker. He's ministering in the word as well. He's ministering to other people, to the people who come and meet in his house. So already we've got quite a picture now, haven't we, of Philemon, of his household, of some ministry. And then verse 3, we have a very standard greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We won't spend much time on that. Now, as we continue to look at Philemon... Let's look at verse 4. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And if that sounds familiar to you, it should because it's pretty much the same thing that he says to the church at Colossae at the beginning of Colossians. Colossians starts, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So with regards to similarities, in the church generally, Paul is thanking God every time he prays for them and here with Philemon, he's thanking God every time he prays for him. Also, in the church at Colossae, he is referencing faith and love, and here in Philemon, he's referencing faith and love. The faith and love is directed towards Jesus and towards the saints, and here in, uh, so that's in Colossians, and in Philemon here, the faith and the love is directed towards Jesus and the saints. The only shift is, in Colossians, it is faith in Jesus and love for the saints. And here, it's love for Jesus um, and, and, sorry, love and faith for Jesus and the saints. So in other words, there is faith for the saints as well. You say, how do you have faith, you have faith in Jesus? How do you have faith in the saints? Well, in that sense, faith would mean faithfulness. There is a loving faithfulness. And I think sometimes, by the way, when you see love and faith in the Bible, we think of there being love, one thing, and faith, another thing. But sometimes like this, what, what scholars call it a, a hendiasis, if you like your big words, which is basically when two words are used together to mean one thing. And love and faithfulness go together because that's the most common words to communicate the covenant-keeping, faithful love that God has 
in the Old Testament. In other words, God is a covenant-keeping God and he shows his love by his faithfulness in keeping the covenants. So when we reflect God, we are covenant-keeping kinds of people as well. That's why the emphasis on marriage in Ephesians and Colossians. Because we express our godliness by being godlike in so far as we too show our love through faithfulness to one another. And that's going to be important in how he goes on to request certain things from Philemon. But at this stage, we need to just be clear that this is the guy who is typical of the godly people at Colossae. Just as Paul is thankful for the church as a whole, he's thankful specifically for this presumably church leader, Philemon. Then, <clears throat> then in verse 6, and he says, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. This is a cool verse. Okay, a couple of things here. Firstly, I pray that the sharing of your faith will be effective. So it seems from this that Philemon, though he's, he's probably a church leader, he's probably got this church in his ho uh, home that's part of the bigger Colossian church. Maybe he's an elder or a pastor, one of the, the leaders at the church at, uh, at Colossae. But it seems as if when Paul prays for him, specifically he's praying for someone who shares their faith. Now, remember Ephesians. Some are called to be apostles and prophets, as they were in that era, but then in chapter 2, verse 20, previously, we saw that they were the foundation of the church, so that's not something that then continues. But we also saw that there were pastors and other teachers, but the other one that, that equipped, these are the ones that equip the saints. So the apostles and prophets are equipping you today, here, through the Bible. Pastor-teacher is equipping you today through the preaching of the apostles and prophets. The fifth role that equips the saints for the work of service, if you recall, is the work of evangelists. Oh Lord, we pray that you would raise up evangelists in this church. Because you see, it's pretty pointless somebody teaching the Bible and expecting someone to change if they haven't even believed in the gospel yet. And so the work of the apostles and prophets is communicated through the pastors and teachers, but there is a crucial link in all of that, which is the role of evangelists to bring people to faith so that they might hear and believe the message that is brought to them. And again, God, raise up evangelists in this church. We want to see people saved. We want to see people come and hear the gospel and be saved. We want people in this church who are uniquely gifted to just go out and share their faith. Who, who, who find more excitement in going out and telling people about Jesus than they do going to the movies or doing whatever else it is that, that people do in their spare time. That this is their passion. And it seems that Philemon had a, had a reputation 
within his home church, within his ministry, of being somebody who leads people to the Lord. Now, some of you may be ahead of me at this point. Cue the irony, okay? Last Sunday evening, when I was preaching through Mark, we looked at the passage that said that a prophet is not without honour except in his hometown, with his relatives, and with his family. In other words, sometimes people are too close to you to receive your ministry. Sometimes people knowing you and your background is a hindrance to them receiving ministry from you. Philemon has a reputation as an evangelist. And he's just had one of his servants, who presumably from what we know about him, he's, been, he's, he's treated him very well, who as an unbeliever has run away from him and stolen a bunch of stuff to support his journey. Guys, that's always the case. That's exactly what I was teaching last Sunday night. Here he is, people come into his home, people come into his house, to his home church, and here he is sharing his faith effectively, and Paul says, I pray it will keep being effective. And Onesimus, who was part of that household, who would have been considered like extended family, wasn't saved. It's so often the case. And I see in Paul's words here, in his prayer, he says, look, I'm praying for you, Onesimus, that while you share your faith, that will be effective. And I see within those words, I see encouragement saying, look, Onesimus wasn't saved by you. He came to faith through my ministry. But I'm praying that yours will continue to be effective. Sometimes people are too close to you. Sometimes for your parents, for your children, for your dearest and nearest, sometimes you, you need to pray that somebody else comes in who can be effective for them. And I see that exact principle that I taught last Sunday here in Philemon, that a man who is renowned for his sharing of his faith, uh, that that... that man, his own servant, part of his own household, didn't get saved through his ministry. Now, notice in the second half of this verse, the, the sharing of your faith may become effective for. So the goal in sharing your faith is not simply that somebody would be saved, but it's that they would receive the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now that is very much paralleled, and I feel like a scratch record at this point, but we have consistently shown you throughout the book of Colossians references to the words wisdom, knowledge, learning, understanding, and again before that in the book of Ephesians. And I've shown you again and again and again that Paul very clearly teaches that the path to Christian maturity is not seeking after some blessing that we have not yet received. In contra contrary to that, we have received every blessing that we need to receive from the Lord. 
Rather, our path to Christian maturity comes from a growing in understanding, growing in knowledge, learning, growing in wisdom with regards to the blessings that we already have. And that's your parallel with Colossians 1, where he says, we've heard about the faith, the love, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. In other words, what you know about your blessings is motivating you to faith and love. And what he's saying here now is, I'm praying that your evangelistic ministry will be effective, okay? But effective doesn't mean somebody getting saved and being baptized and stopping it as a baby Christian and staying there. The New Testament knows nothing of this. We, through our church traditions and our altar calls and our evangelistic outreach, we've created this this concept of, of easy believism, of cheap grace, where people come and say, I believe in Jesus at the, at the spur of the moment, in, in a moment of emotion, and they never ever move forwards. And we've seen that in our, in our studies in Mark, where you have somebody, you've got a seed that goes into the ground, and, and immediately there's growth. But then what happens is, is there's trials, there's temptations, there's difficulties, there's the world. And some of this, the, the seeds that have planted, what, what's been produced, is choked by the world or dried up by trials. And the message of Mark, when we looked at it closely, was not that these people had faith that was hindered, but that these people never had faith. That some people hear the gospel and go, yeah! And yet they're not really saved. And... The reality is, is that effective evangelism is not someone praying the sinner's prayer. Effective evangelism is somebody coming to faith in Christ and going on to the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us, the blessings that we've had, in us for the sake of Christ. So God has given us blessings, yay for us, but he's given us those blessings for a purpose, and the purpose is for the sake of Jesus Christ. Not for our sakes, for his sakes. This is what we had in Ephesians. He's blessed you in this, the Father's blessed you in this way, for the sake of his glory. The Son's blessed you in this way, for his glory. The Spirit's blessed you in this way, for his glory. That's why we've been blessed. And how do we do that? Full knowledge of every good thing that is in us. We've just got to keep growing in our knowledge of Christ, of what he's done for us, and of the blessings that we have and the ramifications of them. So, verse 7. Four. So this is, this is giving you the reason why he thanks God and why he prays. I thank God, verse 4, and I pray, verse 6. For, because, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. 
This is the last thing now that we, we are told in this opening section about Philemon. We know already so much about him, that he has a church in his home. He's probably a, a church leader. He's part of the bigger church at Colossae. That he has at least two servants, one of whom was unsaved initially and one of whom was saved. We know that he is somebody who is typical of the Colossian church in that he has love and he has faith. He had this, had this loving faithfulness, this covenant-keeping love that, that is uh, typical of God is seen in him and that he may well have a ministry that is particularly gifted towards evangelism. But what it is that really sticks out about him is that Paul says, I've had joy and I've had comfort. Why? Because saints' hearts have been refreshed through you. Listen, it doesn't matter if you're a teacher, if you're an evangelist, if you're someone who nips out of church to get teas and coffees for everyone for afterwards, if you're singing in worship, if you're a prayer warrior, if you're somebody who, who provides great financial support, if you're someone who's an encourager, it doesn't matter what your gift is. The fruit of our gifts is the same. Refreshed saints. It doesn't matter if you hand someone a bunch of money, whether you give them an encouraging word, whether you preach God's word to them, whether you lead them to the Lord, whether you do acts of service for them, or whether you cry out and petition to God on their behalf. The result is the same, which is that we're lifting one another up. Which takes us back to the lesson that we learned in the book of Ephesians, which is this, that every single one of us has been given the Holy Spirit. If we have faith in Christ, we have the Spirit in us. And that Holy Spirit unites us all, and yet He distinguishes us all because we have different gifts, which unites us further because we all need each other. Because the gifts that we've been given, and here's the key point, are not for us. You've not been given your gifting so that you will be blessed. You've been given your gifting so that other people would be blessed. Honestly, my gifting for me personally has been such over the years that there's been times where I've said, God, I wish you'd never given me this gifting. It's brought me trials and difficulties and persecution and I'd rather have been without them and I'd rather have had a different gift, thank you very much. But I know other people have been blessed by it. You see, I don't, this, my gift is not for me to be blessed. It's for me to bless with. You know what, what is for my blessing? Your gifts. And that's how church works. It's not... That it's, it's not that we come simply to receive. You guys are as much an integral part of the church as I am. We've, we've got to understand this. This is, this is why we're trying to you know, have Sunday evenings and we're trying to do Tuesdays and we try to do other things. And we, we try and we, we have teas and coffees afterwards and we do potlucks because we, we're trying to create more opportunities for us to be together so that we can minister to one another. I need you. 
I need you all. We all need each other. I don't want you to ever think, if I don't go to church this Sunday, I'm going to miss out on the sermon. If that's your concern for missing church, you've, you've missed it. Your concern for missing church should be, I'm not going to be ministering to someone today. And if you're thinking, but I never minister to anyone when I'm there, then pray. Pray that there be an opportunity for you to minister. Pray before you come, God, open a door for ministry. Let me give a word of encouragement to someone. If you're, if you're a prayer warrior, if that's your ministry, then seeing people here might be the prompt, you know, I haven't prayed for that person for a while. You know, that person looked like they were struggling this week. They looked a bit down. Let me see how I can pray for them this week. You see, what, 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 what happens when you opt out of church the tragedy is not, not what you don't receive. The tragedy is what you don't give. Because the job of the apostles and prophets through the word, of the evangelists who lead people to the Lord, and the pastors and teachers who preach, is to equip saints, that's everybody else, for the work of ministry. You are the ministers. I don't hear it as much over here as I do in England, but sometimes people who are full-time pastors are referred to as the ministers. Ugh! What a horrible phrase. Because it's totally wrong. If anything, I'm the one person that isn't the minister. You could argue that I am a minister as well, and I'll let you have that if you want. But the text specifically says that I'm an equipper. So call me an equipper, if you want to call me something different. But I'm not the minister. And the thing I hate most about that phrase is it has this implication that my job is to minister to everybody else and everybody else's job is to receive from my ministry. Rubbish, total nonsense, bogus, not, it's, just, it's just crazy. It's opposite. My job is to equip you so that you can do the work of ministry. And that's why when I hear that some of you are getting together and you're hanging out in the week and you're meeting up for meals or you're, you're doing stuff, this is, this is music to my ears. I get joy and comfort, like Paul gets joy and comfort. Why? Because the building of relationships is a platform for ministry. It's not an artificial thing. It's not like, we should invite those people around so that we can minister to them, you know? It, it, it's, it's a natural thing. It's a case of, you know, I like these people. Let's get to know them. Let's hang out. And as you do that, ministry naturally happens because we are all ministers and because we have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit desires to minister and because we have gifts and we operate in those gifts even when we don't know about it sometimes, even when we're not aware sometimes. And so Paul is motivated in his gratitude and is motivated in his prayers because he has had joy and comfort because this guy, this guy Philemon, is somebody who ministers. Saints have been refreshed. Hearts have been lifted up. People have been encouraged because of this guy. He sounds like a stand-up guy, doesn't he? 
but he's going to need to stand up a little bit more and a little bit taller and a little bit higher. Paul is going to ask him to do refreshing beyond how he's refreshed before. He's going to ask him to love and to show faithfulness beyond what he's done before. And that is what we're going to see when we pick up in verse 8 next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Philemon. And I thank you that though this book doesn't tell us how he responded to this letter, what this letter tells us about him leaves us in no doubt as to how he will respond. Oh, that the things, that half the things that are said about this man will be said about us. May we be people renowned for our loving faithfulness. May we be people who refresh hearts, who lift people up, who serve, who minister. May we be the expressions of your heart amongst our fellow believers. And Lord, may we see ourselves again as ministers. May we not come to church simply to receive, but to give of ourselves. May we pray each week before we come. May we, may we come and maybe with, with an expectation that you would use us in some way. Seeking for opportunities to encourage, to refresh, to uplift, to pray. May we love one another in this place, Lord. I know we do. It's what drew us, my family, to this place. It's what our last guest speaker said that he saw immediately in this place. But let us do it more, Lord. Let us not be satisfied. Let us love one another more than we do. Let's encourage one another more than we do. Let us minister to one another more than we do. Father, may we be motivated by this man. And Lord, may we be motivated by what he is asked to do as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.